Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Medical School HQ Podcast, session number 42. Welcome back to another amazing episode of the Medical School HQ Podcast, the place to learn how to excel as a pre-med student, learn what it takes to survive medical school, and turn your dream of becoming a physician into reality. My name is Ryan Gray, and I'm excited to host another great podcast for you today. And today, we're going to be talking about what happens if you start medical school and you don't do so well. It's a common issue and one that that I personally went through when I bombed my first uh, microbiology test. The, the way that my school was set up at New York Medical College, we took anatomy and microbiology together, and the tests were back-to-back. And I loved anatomy, so <laughs> for some stupid reason, I spent most of my time with anatomy, and didn't study enough for the microbiology course uh, test, and I didn't do very well on it. And I was able to kind of correct course, figure out where I went wrong, and finish strong in in that class. Today I'm talking to Dr. Sinkfield. She's an anesthesiologist, and she runs a blog called anesthesiabuzz.com, and I'll have links to that in the show notes And as always, you can get the show notes at medicalschoolhq.net slash 42, as in episode 42. And uh, Brandy, her her name's Brandy, I'll refer to her as Brandy. Brandy and I were talking, and I was trying to figure out her path to medicine, and she was talking about how she struggled her first year of medical school and did some things wrong and tried to change too much from her undergrad years. And I wanted her to come on and and tell that story so that you, the listener, can hopefully learn something about the transition from undergrad into medical school. We always talk about the transition from 
high school to undergrad, there's there's a change in the amount of work that you're doing, the the difficulty of the courses that you're taking. Take that change and multiply it by a factor of 10 maybe, and, and that's a good example, a, a good layout of what the change from undergrad to medical school is. And so, so we talk about her path as a pre-med and through medical school, including sometimes that she had to take a break and, and kind of reboot herself and her mind. And, and uh, the fact that she's a practicing anesthesiologist now, it's to give you hope to to hear her story and to give you hope that you you're allowed to struggle it's it's not easy for everybody in fact it's not easy for anybody and so um if you are going through those same struggles know that there's help out there know that there are other options than continuing to struggle so and one other quick thing i want to mention about brandy she is going to be one of our experts one of our attendings inside of the academy to offer her guidance, her advice, her motivation to you, the pre-med and medical student that is struggling, going through the process, looking for information, looking for that honest uh, expert advice from somebody that's been there, done that, and is willing now to go and, and help you. So, if you haven't signed up yet to be notified when we open and when we release this podcast, we're going to be opening probably within a week or so. So to get on the list, to be notified when we open, go to jointheacademy.net and just leave your email and we'll let you know when we open. I first want to thank our new five-star iTunes reviews. And this week we have five again. We have... Parkington Woods, Rick Biage, uh, 5Ray17, The Real Stafford7, and Jackson16. So thank you guys. Awesome reviews. Um, you, you guys, like I said last time, I'm very blessed. All you guys are leaving great reviews, saying great things, so I appreciate everything you guys are doing. I also want to uh, throw out one quick... Um, Request for four people that have left reviews on iTunes. Comet34, King Koming, Jabby25, and Basketball and Medicine23. If you four people can email me, Ryan at Medical School HQ, and let me know that it was you that wrote these reviews, I have a, a request of you four people. So hopefully you guys are listening to this and you'll respond back. So thank you to those guys for those reviews. If you have yet to leave a review, you can do so at medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes. So let's get into the interview with Brandy. We start off by talking about where she is right now as a physician. Well, right now I'm currently a practicing uh, general anesthesiologist. Um, I practice in uh, the state of Indiana. I'm recently board certified as of April of last year. Um, and basically general anesthesia is, 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 is very much general. It's, it's what we call bread and butter. So I do orthopedic cases. I do um, ENT cases. I do general surgery cases. 
um, by and large, that's the majority of the cases that I do. I also do um, obstetrical anesthesia, which basically most people, you know, know about epidurals that we place, but we're also in part uh, a part of the uh, cesarean section team. So if anyone has to go for a C-section, we do that stuff too. Um, and then certainly pain management. Uh, we, we, we have, if you specialize in pain management, that's an additional fellowship, but we certainly are the, you know, we are the people that uh, screen for those patients, and we also do regional anesthesia for patients um, who are going for orthopedic surgery to to manage their acute pain. Um, so that's pretty much what general anesthesiologists do. So you put people to sleep. We put people to sleep, but we wake them up. <laughs> you wake them up. That's the important part. Most importantly. Do you have a favorite type of case? Oh, my favorite type of case. Oh gosh, that's a tough question. I would say I I like I like I like cases where I'm involved in the preoperative pain management. So that can fall into two categories. If let's say it's a a large bowel case where it's a lot it's a large incision and I'm doing the epidural before, um, I have to anticipate. Um, a lot of fluid changes. So I may have to line them up, which is sort of shop talk for placing a central line, placing peripheral IVs, and possibly considering an arterial line, which is a fancy um, catheter that we put in to measure blood pressure from, um, from moment to moment. Those cases keep me busy. They can be long, um, but I like those cases because I can manage them from start to finish. And then even also be a part of if they go to the intensive care unit. I'm also a part of you know um, sort of the, the the introduction of the patient into the to the intensive care. So I I do like those cases. Um, I like orthopedics. I like orthopedic surgery. Um, I just enjoy watching it. So I like to do regional anesthesia for those cases before. And, you know, it's an opportunity to, to follow these patients, you know, even a few days after surgery to see how they're doing and to see how, you know, from day one um, postoperatively to day three, how how well they do and how well, how quickly they improve. So those are probably my top two. Yeah. And, and let's be honest, orthopedic surgeons are the coolest surgeons. <laughs> Uh, I will acknowledge such bias. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. So yes, I do. I do enjoy orthopedic surgery. It's it's fun. Okay. Um, now that we know what you're doing now and a practicing anesthesiologist, let's let's rewind and go back to your pre med days. And uh, were were you a traditional pre med student? Yes, I, I would say generally I was a. Practically speaking, I was with the the uh, the disclaimer that I did defer a year of uh, medical school. I deferred. I got accepted in my you know I guess this your senior year into junior year medical school, and I did take the option to defer a year. Okay, so through undergrad medical school was the goal. You were on that path as a, a quote unquote pre med student. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And and what was your desire to be a physician back then? 
Oh, well, that's a great question because um, I went through a lot of different questions about what it, what it is that I really wanted to be when I was in college. Now, I can tell you I was that kid at seven years old that said, when I grow up, I want to be a doctor. But that changed many, many times. Um, partly because of my exposure to different, you know, different things. At one point I wanted to be an engineer and then I got to calculus and I decided that that's probably not, not gonna, not, not the best idea for me. That's not one of my strengths. Um, when I got to undergrad, um, I had actually entertained dental school. Um, I had some, I had some, uh, some some college mates who had um, family members that were dentists and they were doing very well. And I considered dental school. Um, and then I sort of veered back to medical school. Um, I think those are the main things that I entertain. I think I sort of, I, I, I kind of, you know, considered business, but I just, I, I, that was such a, for me at the time, not understanding what business meant, it was such a loose definition that I just, it, I entertained it maybe for a few months and then I went right back to science because that's just what I knew. Yeah. Um, did, but, did you have any shadowing experience or a, a clinical volunteering experience that pushed you over the edge and said, okay, this is, this is it? Yes. Um, one of the experiences that I had during my undergrad year was at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And at the time, um, the director, I believe his name was Dr. Glenn Warden. He was in charge of the burns unit. And I got to, an opportunity to follow um, the the burn fellows um, on the, the pediatric ward there. And, um, you know, <laughs> They try to prepare you, you know, with what you're going to see, but it just, there's no, there's no words for the things that you see there. Um, you know, these children have, you know, sometimes 50, 60% of their body burned and you hear the stories behind them. Um, and I think definitely uh, the, the, the mental, the question you always ask yourself, or at least I had to ask myself is, can I handle this? You know, because this is going to be my everyday Life. It may not necessarily be burns, but um, the the severity of um, of of uh, vulnerability that patients are are going to need and require from you is it can be it can be this is this is this is the rest of your life. And after that experience, um, you know, I had an opportunity to see an autopsy of a child that I had followed. I had followed this this kid for three weeks, and then I, I you know I got to see his autopsy. And after that experience. I, I, with, you know, I, I hadn't passed out. I hadn't boohooed, you know, I, I, I shed a few tears, but I hadn't booed my heart out to the point that I just felt like I had, I couldn't separate medicine from, you know, myself from, from the, from the, my, my role as at the time a pre-medical student, but ultimately thinking as a doctor, I felt like I'm going to be okay. And, um, you know, that's part of, that was actually a part of my personal essay is that experience. So. It's interesting. You mentioned separating yourself. I think we're, we're in a, in a swing where patients and physicians, they, they kind of want that empathy and they, they want those emotions from a physician. They don't want them to block it and be stone cold and, and be able to separate everything. Yes, but I would say I, I, I do agree with that. Um, 
at the same time, you have to maintain a sense of objectivity when you're making decisions for patients. Um, not in a not in a sense that you're stone cold, but in a sense that um, if I if I'm gonna do the very best for you, I have to have a I have to sense I have to have a consideration of both your emotional what is best for you emotionally, and what is best for you from a medical. And I have to I have to consider both of those things together when I make a decision. And although that does involve empathy. Um, it does. It it does require a bit of objectivity. Um, I didn't get an opportunity as a pre medical student. I didn't get an opportunity to really um, talk about a lot of the social issues that were going on within the family. I didn't feel like it was appropriate, and it wasn't my <clears throat> it wasn't my place. My job as a pre medical student at the time was to observe. It was to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, as a medical student, I think you start to get more uh, involved in those social that is social experience, um, and it can it can become it can become very weighing and trying on you. Um, I think that experience, you know, as a medical student, it 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 starts to take its its toll on you, and you and sometimes you need your attendings and your mentors to to say, hey, you know, you've got You've got to, uh, you've got to, you've got other, first of all, and this, this is not cold hearted, but this is, you've got other patients and you've got to give everyone in your circle on your list, the quality care. You cannot, you know, you cannot show bias, uh, towards one patient versus another. You have to, you have to make some, some, some degree of level headedness with all of your patients. Yeah, that's and that's hard. I think for a lot of people, the 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 drug addicts that come in, the alcoholics that come in, the um, rich uh, elite of the society come in, and you, you treat everybody the same, right? And I actually wrote a, an article on Kevin MD that I'll link to about that after um, the Boston Marathon bombing. The victim was. Uh, or the the um, the terrorist the uh, was captured, and I mm-hmm. wrote about how he needs to be treated the same as everybody else in the That's hospital right. because That's I right. was seeing a lot of disturbing stuff on my Facebook feed. Obviously, I I'm friends with a lot of other physicians, and a lot of the physicians were saying I wouldn't treat him. I wouldn't. I I would hold out his pain meds, and and that's just you you can't do right. that. But. No. That's a that's that's a whole nother topic. Um, so, through your pre med and undergrad years, w- were you a good student? Pre med, yeah, I was. I was. I was decent. I'm not gonna say I was like a. I was not a summa cum laude. I did not have a four Yeah, but I, I I tell you one of one of the things that I did in pre med that I. I think saved me <laughs> was I started strong. I started strong. Um, I started strong because I was scared. I was really scared. Um, and well, I guess we'll kind of dig into how that came back to haunt me towards, you know, towards medical school. But I was so scared. Um, I, f- I found that historically a lot of people, even though in the end, 
um, they may both, let's say, have a 3.7 or a 3.6. The person that started strong may may have, you know, let's say they slacked and then their grades started to trickle down sophomore and junior year, which that would that would have been me. Um, really didn't have to fight the 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 resistance like the person that started at, let's say the the three five or the three four and then had to work had to work their butt off for the next two to three years. And I think it's because there's this delay in the GPA that you see. So like you may have had a 4.0 you know semester, but if you had a three four average last semester, you're still thinking like you have a 3.4. And I saw that a lot in a lot of my classmates. Like they were beating themselves up and clearly way smarter than me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You have like, I know you're going to get an A in this. I know you're going to get an A in this. I know you're going to get an A in this. And I think that the mentality was just, you know, well, I have had to work so much harder because I started off here, you know? Yeah. Just that much more stress. Yeah. Much bigger of a mountain to climb. Absolutely. So, I mean, if you can start strong and sort of, you know, keep that momentum, I think you're better off than if you, you know, sort of feel like you're, you're climbing up a mountain, but. Yeah. And and that's advice that, that Dr. Politis um, on some of the podcasts that he's been on has mentioned as far as starting your undergrad years, starting your pre-med years to, to not dive too deep into classwork and extracurricular activities and, and all the other things that you think you have to do immediately it's it's best to start off, get acclimated to college, get acclimated to college coursework not being as as uh, directed and and by your teachers as you would be in high school. Learn how to be a college student and then go add everything else later. Exactly. I I couldn't. I could. I totally agree with that. That is. I think in that pro- that might have been part of the advice that I was given by senior by senior um, um, college students when I was there when I was a when I was a freshman is you know really at the end of the day it is about your grades and that's the only thing that you can protect all this social and extracurricular stuff um, is important it is it is important because um, that also that makes you who you are and that also you know puts a paints a picture and and provides a portrait for people who, if you, you know, when you're considering, when you're trying to apply it for medical school, but it has to be, it has to be, it has to all be, you know, put in context. And for me, what I notice is my second in my, my, my sophomore and my junior year, which were much more difficult than my freshman year. And that's where that first, you know, that first year just, it paid off, you know, um, cause I could afford to kind of like, you know, I didn't, you know, do as great, you know, as I did, you know, my, my, my freshman year. So, but you did well enough to get into medical school. I did. So you, you took the MCAT, did well enough on that and you applied and you got into medical school and you said you deferred a year. I did. Talk about that. Well, let me back up here. Um, with my medical, my so first of all, I took my MCATs twice. Um, the first time, I didn't do that great. It was just, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't remember the numbers, but it, you know, I think I had a 
a conversation with, you know, a counselor and we both agreed, like, these numbers are not going to be competitive for you. Um, so I had to take them again. And I took them while I was doing research. I was doing research in a, um, in a, in a neuroscience uh, lab. And the way the lab was set up was I would have to come in and do certain um, parts of the, 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 uh, the project at 6 a.m. in the morning. So I'd have to be there at 6 a.m. And, and you better be there at 6 a.m. because if you're not there, that affects the rest of the day because these were 12-hour studies. And um, so, so I'm doing that while I'm also studying for the MCAT. And then I was also working as a, I don't know, it was like a summer program. I was like a, a teaching assistant or something like that. And it was very, it was a lot. It was, it was very stressful. I, I, I think that was probably my first realization that like there's no summer off, you know, which I think a lot of times in, when you get to medical school up until your second year, you know, you get every summer off. And that was, you know, I would think I was in my junior year and this is my first like not no summer off. So by my senior year, I was white. I was just I was done. I did. I just I had made a decision probably by November or December that I could not, I could not, I could not, if I was thinking the way that I was thinking my, in January, and I was supposed to start medical school in August, there was just no way I was going to do well. So I deferred, I just deferred. I decided that I needed a one year without science, mm-hmm. <laughs> one year of no science. And okay. what did you do that year off? So it's funny you asked that. Actually, the year off, I graduated in June. I, I graduated in May of two thousand and one. So, I had the plan was for me to teach English in Japan, and I also had considered also um, working on a cruise line. And then September eleventh happened. <laughs> it was actually. A week before I was supposed to go to Chicago to get my um, to get my training for the teaching in Japan. And then September 11th happened and everything changed. And I, you know, I didn't even ask my parents if it was still okay for me to go to Japan. I knew that it was not okay for me to go to Japan at that point. So I ended up actually becoming a waitress. That's what I did. And I really enjoyed it. Um, I I got to see. A lot. I got to meet a lot of different people. It was it's, it's an excellent way to beef up on your people skills, especially you know when you're in medicine. Like you realize how important your people skills are, and I really enjoyed it. And I did that for about six months. Okay. So you start medical school after a year of of no intense coursework, no coursework probably at all, just mm-hmm. relaxing your brain. Mm-hmm. And then med school hits. And this is really the, the heart of the story here is from from talking to you before is you kind of struggled in at the beginning of med school. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I started um, before, and I mean, and I should say, I think you start you start at medical school in we'll say August. Prior to that, I had moved I had already moved in in June just to kind of get myself acclimated. And I started talking to other medical students. I talked to people that were now had just completed their first year in medical school. And they were just so 
beside themselves. I mean, it was like, it was like I had talked to these people a year ago and they had smiles and I talked to them, you know, now a year later and they were not happy. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why you should never ask a medical student or a resident if if you should go into medicine because they'll all (laughs) tell you no. Yes. (laughs) So um, needless to say, they scared they scared me. I, they scared me. And, um, I had been, I had been talking to them off and on throughout that, um, that deferred year about what I should do. And the advice that I was getting is to study early, keep your mind in the books, keep reading and, and, and keep preparing. So I did that. So by the time I had gotten, I had moved in in June, I had already picked out, you know, how to study books. And I had, I had, you know, I knew kind of what the the first um, the first month curriculum was, and I had already been studying probably May, well, probably late May, June. I had already started studying for it. I started hitting it, you know, a little bit harder in July, but by August, you know, I had kind of had an idea. I had a general, at least I thought I did. I had a general idea of what to study. Well. Lo and behold, the first exam, I bombed it. I, it was just, you know, I, I can only tell you that, in the, you know, this was six years ago. I literally remember thinking that my style of studying had changed. Something was different. The way that I had studied from undergrad was very different from the way that I had started studying um, in medical school. And I think that that pip, that, that difference was these, I had read these books on how to quote unquote survive, you know, how to study in medical school. And it changed the way that I studied. And for, for the worse. For, exactly. For the worse. Okay. And um, it took me a while to undo that. It took me a while. And by the time that I realized what was going on, See, so now I'm on the, I'm not starting strong. You know, now I'm climbing up a hill because now I have to catch up to where, you know, I had, I think at the second exam, I didn't do, I did better, but it wasn't great, you know? And so I'm, I'm climbing up a hill and I think by February, I, I, we had, we were taking nephrology, we were on renal nephrology and I had just decided, Hey, look, this is, I'm off to a rough start. Um, And at the time I had thought, I thought I had considered doing dermatology. I had an opportunity to do a research um, program in dermatology. And I just kind of went to my dean and I said, hey, look, I think I need to, I need to, I need some time to redirect myself. And I entered, I put myself in that research program and I did research for the rest of the year. And I, I just restarted my year. I just restarted. Okay. And what, when, when you went to the dean, what did he or she, what was their response to, to you asking for kind of a, a restart? They were very receptive. Um, it's, it, I think that they saw sort of the pattern before I knew what was going on. I think that just from their experience, they kind of know when people are going to, you know, have some problems because, there are, the, you know, at the end of medical school, and I don't know if they still do this, but you have a comprehensive exam, you know, to make sure that you've, you, you have mastered all the material from the entire year. 
And I think just historically, they know that students who struggle with certain courses probably are not going to do well on that exam. And so they, I think they were more receptive. They understood. Um, they certainly encouraged me to, to, to keep in touch with them um, and make sure that, you know, when I did when I did return that, you know, I had continued to study and continue to read and also uh, en- encouraged me to introduce um, ec- exercise, which I had done in undergrad, undergrad, but not consistently. And like, you know, this is something that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm noticing even more and more, even as a practicing physician, um, that physical exercise is, is kind of like being pushed to the back burner in terms of maintaining wellness, your mental wellness. And, you know, so when my dean encouraged me to do things like that, you know, I, I did everything that he told me to do. And I, it definitely helped me come back and be a stronger student, much stronger student. Exercise. Good for the good for the heart. Good for the brain. Good for the brain. But also just to it's I mean, it it when you're frustrated, you know, because when that happened, I was very frustrated and I had no means in which to express it because now the people that I had bonded with had gone on to the second year like they were, you know, I didn't I couldn't even relate to people. So here I was in this city where I really, you know, all the people that I connected with were in medical school and you know, you just have, you need to have something, you need to have an agenda when you're kind of out like that. And, you know, part of my day was now exercising. It was, you know, doing research and it was clearing my mind so that I could study. Mm-hmm. So, so when you went back and, and restarted your first year, what, what do you think, how did you attack it differently so that you were successful moving forward? I got a study buddy. I ended up finding out later on that there were actually several people that had continued after I had, I I think I stopped in February, but a a number of people went on and done the comprehensive exam. And at the end of that exam, um, a few more people were were told that they had to repeat. And amongst those people, I reached out um, to, um, to one young lady in particular, and we studied together and, um, we had long conversations about what our plan of action was before we decided to, um, start it again, but we did it together. That was the first thing. Um, the second thing is I just went back to what I did before, what got me to that point. You know, um, I just let go of, you know, these how to study things because it, it clearly wasn't working. Mm-hmm. The third thing I did was I taught myself. So I got myself a whiteboard, got myself some dry erase markers, and I went through all the objectives in the coursework, and I started to teach myself. I literally was talking to myself, Ryan, in my own, in my office, in my apartment. I was talking to myself, and I was teaching myself. I talked out what the objectives were. Um, a lot of times in medical school, there's just so much information that you feel like you don't have time to to simplify things for yourself. And that's untrue. It just depends on how you manage your time. And I found that the more I could simplify things, meaning talk it out and break it down into in more simplified, way, um, manageable, you know, edible pieces. And when it was time to actually review and study for the exam, I had, I had worked out all the complexities. It was easy. I could see it again. I've spoke it. I've thought about it. I've intellectualized it. I've had a conversation about it and now I'm ready. Yeah. Um, and, so, and yeah, I, I think 
the message that you're delivering is is something that I've said over and over again on here is that studying is is a very individual act. You can't mm-hmm. rely on other people's experiences to to kind of take and and use as your own. You have to know what works best for you. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you study well in a coffee shop or do you need a library? Do you mm-hmm. listen to music or do you need silence? Can mm-hmm. you have a study buddy or do you need to be alone? There mm-hmm. it's it's very individual and I think you experienced firsthand trying to adapt somebody else's experiences into your own and your your body rejected them. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And I mean, even in medical school, probably in undergrad too, I don't, I don't remember seeing them in undergrad, but there's always, you know, summaries of notes going around. People who have created their own notes to study from. I couldn't use them. I had to make it my own. I had to make it my own before I was really able to, you know, use it, apply it and, and make decisions with the information that I had. Yeah. Well, you obviously figured it out because you finished med school, you got into a a pretty competitive specialty, anesthesia, and and now you're practicing. So I, the the message of today's podcast is is more of that struggling through med school that there there is the light at the end of the tunnel. You need to go seek out help from your dean, from the professors, and, and they from from everything out there. Medical schools want you to graduate. They don't they don't want to accept people and then have them fail out because it looks bad on them. So they will uh, help you if you need it. Absolutely. And just continue to connect. Like, I also would say that a lot of times, and this is also true in undergrad, you feel like you're the only person going through this. And you're not. You're not. And it's keep talking. You will find someone that has been there and done that. And it's you're not you're not the you're not the only person. Just keep talking. You'll find that person. Yeah. And maybe they'll find that person in the academy once we open it up. Absolutely. I think that's that is an excellent way in which to you know to improve dialogue amongst people who have questions when they're afraid to ask. You know, they they may not want to ask it in a, you know, face to face, but in a in a in a in a community like the academy, I think, is wonderful because they they are amongst people that have been there and done that, and it will be very helpful, very very helpful. So the academy is obviously something that we're working on online, but you're also working on something online, and that's kind of how we connected. Absolutely, yeah. Tell us um, what you're working on. I have um, a a blog. It's called AnesthesiaBuzz dot com. Um, I started it a few months ago, and I started it um, for the very reason that I just spoke of, and that is that oftentimes, um, you know, I'm a part of the American Society of Anesthesiology, and I believe in, you know, we also have the American Patient Safety Foundation, but these are very formal organizations that I use a lot. Um, They provide guidelines in the way that I practice medicine. 
But I also think that there are some gray areas there of issues that are may not necessarily be answered through these guidelines and and it can come from experience. They can come from, you know, experienced anesthesiologists and to help people, you know, that are either a in residency who are even considering anesthesia if they're if they're a medical student and some and people sort of in between like me. I just started. I'm I just started practicing. I'm I'll be you know practice two years. And sometimes it can be very difficult for me to find people who can help me with those practice management, you know, questions that are may not may not necessarily be answered in a textbook. It just it's a you know, these may be stylistic points. And so it's just another form for people to to discuss some of those issues, um, whether it's it's professional uh, clinical experiences or even personal experiences. Um, there are many things in in medicine that's not unique to anesthesia that I think that many you know physicians and non physicians um, can relate to. And so, just trying to provide another another form for that to to have more dialogue yeah. um, about that. And that's important. I, I think emergency medicine has done a great job of doing this. Mm-hmm. There there are several. Um, emergency medicine websites and podcasts and spreading the emergency medicine um, kind of message to everybody that's interested. And I I haven't seen many for other specialties, so it's good that you're starting that. Yeah. Okay. You have uh, maybe one final word of wisdom for a pre-med or a med student out there struggling right now? I would definitely say keep your head up and stay positive. Really focus on the, there are more positive things going on than negative. I don't care how, how bad you think it is or how, (laughs) you know, how discouraging it can be. You know, yes, it's very competitive, but it does not mean that it can't, it can't be done. There are many, 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 many roads to success, and you can do it. Don't let anyone tell you anything differently. All right, folks. Again, that was Dr. Sinkfield, an anesthesiologist and uh, somebody that is proof that you're allowed to struggle as a pre-med, as a medical student, and you can come out on the other end and and be a successful physician, be a, a competent physician, and uh, and life is still okay. And, and that's the ultimate message: is is that no matter how many times you fall down, the the old adage: no matter no matter how many times you fall down, you get back up, you wipe yourself off, you keep pushing forward. So hopefully, you the listeners out there got something informative today. Stay tuned for next week's podcast talking about the MCAT 2015 with Kaplan. We hope to see you next time here at the Medical School Headquarters. (laughs) 